Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you are with us today, both here and those who have joined us online. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, I am just cognizant of my own weakness and recognizing that no good will come in these moments apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we ask and pray that you would do your work through your Spirit today, that you would speak to each one of us. And God, we trust the promise that your word will never return void that it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, as Pastor Jonathan mentioned, we were at a conference last week, and uh, I heard a message, and the pastor reminded us in that message that whether we know it or not, all of our striving in life is really a striving for the acceptance of our Creator, our Heavenly Father. Now, the letter to the Galatians, which we've been studying as a church, it wasn't written to atheists, to people who don't believe in God. It was written to those who were wrestling with the best way to draw near to Him, to worship Him, and to be free of their guilt from their sins. The Judaizers have been pointing the Gentile Christians to the Mosaic Law as the way, but Paul has been passionately arguing through this letter and pointing uh, them to Christ, that we draw near to God and are accepted and forgiven and counted righteous by faith in Christ. And when we base our acceptance on our performance, we live in fear of rejection. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? That's Old Covenant thinking, but we still fall into that way of thinking, and we wonder if we're accepted. And this pastor in this message, to paraphrase him, was talking about how that insecurity then leads us to to grab hold of what we can control, our obedience, our works, our sacrifices, and then we point to those things to establish our righteousness and to prove to ourselves, to others, to God, that we are worthy of acceptance and love. But that's slavery because it leads to either self-righteousness on the one hand or to utter despair on the other hand. The alternative is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. In it, God promises to be merciful, that He will forgive our sins and remember our iniquities no more. He does that and can do that because of the final, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Jesus removes our guilt and He averts God's wrath. Galatians 3.13 He clothes us in His perfect righteousness, Galatians 2.21 and 3.27, so that when we come to God, we're no longer slaves but sons. God is our Heavenly Father, Galatians 4, 6, and 7. We're welcomed, accepted, and loved. 
See, the Judaizers have been preaching this legalistic kind of Christianity and essentially saying that, that the Gentile Christians in Galatia needed to become Jews and live by the Jewish law if they were going to be good Christians. They were adding the, uh, the, the law of Moses on top of the gospel of Jesus. And as Pastor Jonathan preached last week, once you have Christ adding anything to the gospel, either for justification or for sanctification, is turning back to slavery, a life of slavery. So our text today is going to address those whose religion is performance-based who trust themselves for their righteousness and to gain God's acceptance, God's blessings. There are a lot of religious people who think that the way to God and their relationship with God depends on strictly following certain rules, rituals, traditions. That's bondage. Christ has set us free from bondage to works of the law as a way to draw near to God. He set us free from the bondage to sin. Paul is going to urge the Christians in Galatia against returning to the Mosaic Law, urging them to live in the freedom that they have in Christ. That's why our text today ends with an exhortation to freedom in Galatians 5.1. So, the message for us today is this. Christ has set you free. So stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the conclusion that Paul comes to in Galatians 5.1. Now our text breaks into three parts. We're going to look at the historical situation, the covenantal interpretation, and then the personal application. Those three things. First, let's look at the historical situation. Before you put yourself under the law, will you listen to the law? We see this in verses 21 to 23. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The implication is, is if you did, you wouldn't go back to it because it's a fatal mistake. And to help them see this, Paul is going to use an illustration from the Old Testament law to show God's inheritance comes through promise. He's going to compare Abraham's two sons born of two women in two different ways. One according to the flesh, the other according to promise. And that's the key. So let's look at verses 22 and 23 again. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through promise. Now to understand what Paul is talking about here, we've got to go back to the historical situation in Genesis. You remember that God promised Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation, and through him all the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But in Genesis 15, Abraham is sad because he still doesn't have a son. And at that point, Eliezer is his heir. 
And that's when God promises to make his offspring as numerous as the stars. You remember he takes him outside at night, he says, look up at the stars. Can you number those? That's how numerous your offspring are going to be. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you remember that Paul already used this in Galatians 3 to show that justification comes by faith. So far, so good. But things take a wrong turn in Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah still don't have a child. And so they take matters into their own hands. Sarah says to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so he did. Abraham took Hagar to be his wife, and that's how Ishmael was born. They acted from a lack of faith. This was an attempt to fulfill the promise of God through human effort, using their own resources and abilities. So when Paul says in verse 23 that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, he means that he was born naturally, but also that he was the product of self-reliance, not faith. They didn't rely on God's power, but on their own to get an heir and a son. They're trying to take God's blessings for themselves rather than waiting on God to receive it. How often do we, from a lack of faith, selfishly try to get God's blessings for ourselves by our own strength and wisdom rather than trusting God to provide it in His time? Now, in contrast, Isaac's birth cannot be attributed to human effort. In Genesis 17, God again promises a son through Sarah, and Abraham laughs. We saw this in our reading today. He says, shall a a child be born to a guy who's 100 years old? (laughs) Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And then Abraham, watch this, he begs God. He begs God that Ishmael might be the son and heir through whom the promise could be fulfilled. He says, oh, that Ishmael might be remembered before you or might live before you. Rather than trust God, Abraham asks God to bless his plan. How often have we done the same thing? But God says, no, Sarah's going to bear you a son and you're going to call his name Isaac and I'm going to establish my covenant with him. The covenant offspring is going to be through Isaac, not Ishmael. God's going to fulfill his promise in a way that is totally impossible from a human perspective so that Abraham has to rely on God alone, trusting him by faith and therefore leaving no room for boasting. God's going to get all the glory. Well, finally, in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. Verse 1 says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. The author of Hebrews says this, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had Promised. Notice the emphasis on promise. Paul says in Galatians 4.23, Isaac was born through promise. So he's contrasting according to the flesh to according to promise. It was God's work, not theirs. Now there are two sons. Both 
are sons of Abraham, but there are two important differences. First, they were born from different mothers and they had different statuses. Hagar was a slave and her son was born into slavery. Sarah was free. Her son was born into freedom. Second, they were born in different ways. Ishmael was born naturally. Isaac was born supernaturally. Look at verse 29. Isaac was born according to the Spirit. So being born according to promise is equated with being born according to the Spirit. His birth was supernatural because the Holy Spirit had to give Sarah the power to conceive, Hebrews 11, 11, when she was beyond childbearing age. This was God's work. Now this chart helps us visualize the comparison. Ishmael represents man's way, the way of the flesh, that of self-reliance, trusting your own works. Isaac represents God's way, the way of promise, that of faith, trusting God's work in Christ. Ishmael represents self-reliance and works righteousness. Isaac represents faith and God's imputed righteousness. These two represent two approaches to religion, law and grace, flesh and spirit, self-reliance and dependence on God by faith. And we're like one or the other. There's meaning in these events that correspond to a key theological truth. Those who rely on the law and human effort to be right with God are not true children of the covenant. They're like Ishmael, slaves with no share in the inheritance. Only those who rely on the promise by faith in Jesus Christ are true covenant children. This has been Paul's focus through chapters 3 and 4. whole time, he's never lost sight of this. These two women and their sons represent two different covenants, and this leads to point 2, Paul's covenantal interpretation. These women represent two covenants. So who's your mama? Who's your mama? See, it's, it's not enough to have Abraham as your father. Because Abraham had two sons. Two sons. But only one received the inheritance. So who's your mama? Verse 24 says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, these things are being taken figuratively, for these women represent two covenants, as the CSB translates this verse. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, I feel like today I need to just... This word allegorical, it's not used anywhere else. And probably the best way to think about this is either Paul is using this story figuratively, as the CSB translates it, or, as some commentators talk about it, typologically. A type is just where there's a pattern in the Old Testament that points forward to the New Covenant, right? And so, we're going to see in this text, I want to give you a heads up, we're going to see this pattern. There's a pattern in the Old Testament of God bringing about His covenant offspring from women who are barren. Okay, so you've got Sarah, 
Rebecca, Rachel, Baron, Baron, Baron. And Isaiah is going to pick up that pattern and he's going to apply that to Jerusalem. And this, this future Jerusalem, barren, but it's going to be fruitful. Then Paul in Galatians 4 picks that up and he applies it to the church. That's what we're going to see. I wanted to give you a heads up. Hopefully that was clear. That was not in my notes. <laughs> but I feel like we, needed to, we need to know that, what's going on here. All right, so back to the text. Hagar corresponds to this covenant. Uh, he says that the, these women correspond to two covenants. Hagar corresponds to the covenant made with Moses on Mount Sinai. And like Hagar's children, those who are in this covenant are slaves. Now we've already seen in the book of Galatians that the law enslaves us because it demands perfect obedience from us, but it does not give us any power to keep it. So the law cannot be used to satisfy God or to escape condemnation. We can't do either of those things through the law. The law can only reveal our sin. It can't remove it. The law can kill, but it can't bring life. So Hagar corresponds to this present earthly Jerusalem with those who insist on keeping the law. That's Judaism and the Judaizers. Sarah corresponds to the new covenant in Christ, which fulfills the covenant to Abraham. The new covenant is not bondage, it's freedom. In a way that's analogous to Isaac's supernatural birth, the Galatians and all Christians have become God's children by God's grace and God's power, not human effort. That is why the Bible says, but to all who did receive Him, that's Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1, 12 and 13. We're born of the Spirit, we enter the new covenant, we have forgiveness and life in Christ by faith. Sarah corresponds to the heavenly Jerusalem. Believers are citizens of the heavenly city. And that's a present reality. That's our home address, if you will. So much so the Bible calls us strangers and aliens here. Our real home, our true home is heaven. This is part of the already and the not yet that we see in the New Testament. Then Paul quotes Isaiah 54. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now the question is, how does this verse serve as the ground for Paul's argument in verse 26 that Gentile Christians are children of the Jerusalem that is above? Notice what he says. For it is written. Because it is written. He's using this verse to ground his argument that the Gentile Christians are part of the Jerusalem that is above. But how does that work? Like, how does this verse serve as the ground for that? Well, in Isaiah 54, the prophet compares Jerusalem to a barren woman who's been abandoned by her husband and who has lost all of her children. It's Isaiah 54, 1 
verses 4 through 6 and 11 through 12. Jerusalem's like this desolate woman without children because at this time Israel is in exile in Babylon. All her children are gone. (laughs) She's barren because they're in exile. They're in exile because they've failed to keep the law. And Isaiah predicts a time when the Lord is going to have compassion. When His judgment will end and God's covenant of peace is going to be established, Isaiah 54.10, a time when Isaiah, or excuse me, a time when Jerusalem will be restored and repopulated with more children than ever before. Verse 1, Isaiah 54.1, and verses 7 and 8. So this pattern of Sarah's life is going to be repeated. The barren one is going to be fruitful. The new Jerusalem that Isaiah is pointing forward to is going to be so fruitful that Isaiah says it's going to have to enlarge her tent and spread out because her offspring will possess the nations. Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. So, the contrast that Isaiah is drawing is between the present Jerusalem of his day, Isaiah's day, with this future Jerusalem when it's going to be repopulated by God's own intervention for the sake of His people. Now, that promise in Isaiah had a partial fulfillment when God brought His people back from exile. But it was only a partial fulfillment. Paul is teaching in Galatians that its true fulfillment is found in the growth and expansion of the church in Christ The promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations is fulfilled. The heavenly Jerusalem is being populated with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in places places like Galatia, with these Gentiles being born again through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That promise is still being fulfilled today. As men and women around the globe put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they become citizens of the Jerusalem that is above, that is the heavenly city to the glory of God. Now it's worth noting here that Isaiah 54.1 follows immediately after Isaiah 53. That is the great servant song. It's probably the most well-known prophecy in the Old Testament points to the suffering servant, the one who will die and rise. It celebrates the redeeming death and resurrection of the servant of God. So it's no stretch to think that Isaiah is reading, or Paul is reading Isaiah 54.1 in light of and as a celebration of the new state of affairs that Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. Those who look to the law of Moses as a job description to earn God's blessing need to listen to what the law actually says. Those who rely on the law and human effort to be right with God, they're not true children of the covenant. They're like Ishmael, slaves with no share in the inheritance. Only those who rely on God's promise by faith are Jesus' true covenant children. Again, that's the theme of chapters 3 and 4. If you're in Christ, rejoice! Rejoice! 
You're Sarah's child. You're a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. You're in the new covenant. You're part of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 54, 1. And this leads us to the personal application. Now you, Christian, what does this mean for you? We're going to see that in verses 28 through 5, 1. Paul starts applying the teaching to the Galatians. He says, now you, brothers... So he's going to apply what he's been talking about. He's going to apply it now to their lives. And I'm going to point out five applications. Now, just now, if you're groaning a little bit that there are five applications, I will just share with you that while we were at this conference, there was one message that had 25 points. 25. Okay? So, you know... Say thank you to Jesus or something right now. It's just five. Like, oh, five, that's not so bad. I'm going to do 25 one day. We'll see how that works. No, I'm kidding. I won't do that to you. All right, number one. Or verse 28. Look at verse 28. It says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's the first application. Like Isaac, every believer is Abraham's offspring, not by nature, but supernaturally by the Spirit. Now, the Judaizers would have said that the Galatians are in the line of Ishmael. But Paul flips the script. He shows that it's those who are under the law, actually, that are children of the slave woman, Hagar, while the children of the free woman, Sarah, are those who have received the gospel of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, verse 31. And if we're like Isaac, we have to be expected to be treated like Isaac was treated. Verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. This is the second application. Expect persecution from the spiritual descendants of Ishmael, both outside and inside the church. In Genesis 21, when Isaac is weaned, he's probably two or three years old, Abraham throws a party. He made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, Genesis 21.8. Ishmael would have been 16 or 17 years old. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, that's Ishmael, laughing. That is, mocking Isaac. He hated Isaac just as his mother Hagar hated Sarah and looked with contempt on her mistress, Genesis 16.4 and 5. See, Ishmael was not just teasing Isaac. He was treating him with contempt. And the Jewish interpretation of that verse is taken in just this way. Isaac was the object of Ishmael's scorn and ridicule. And we must expect the same. The spiritual descendants of Isaac, those of us born according to the Spirit, can still expect persecution from the spiritual descendants of Ishmael, those who are born just according to the flesh. Now, of course, the churches in Galatia, to whom this is written, in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, they were no strangers to persecution from the Jews. So Paul reminds them again, just as he did on his first missionary journey, that persecution for the sake of Christ is to be expected. He says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. I want you to notice here, though, that the persecution is coming from religious people. 
legalists, the nominal church. Some of the greatest threats to the faith are not from unbelievers, but from those inside the church who claim the name of Christ. So we need to expect opposition both from outside and from inside the church. One of the reasons we're willing to suffer for our faith is that we know what God has in store for us. Romans 8 says, We're children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Like Jesus, we endure suffering the same way for the joy that is set before us. Looking to the reward. Hebrews 12.2, Luke 6.22. So, the third application for us is to take heart. Take heart in your inheritance as spiritual descendants of Isaac. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. By quoting Genesis 21.10, Paul crystallizes the defining issue between Ishmael and Isaac. Both are sons, but only one is an heir who inherits God's blessings. Paul wants them to listen to what the law says. Verse 21. Only the son of the free is going to inherit the promise. So if they want to listen to the law, they shouldn't listen to the Judaizers. They won't go back to the law, but stand firm in their faith and not submit to a yoke of slavery so that they'll receive the inheritance. Now, knowing that we have this inheritance encourages us in two ways in this text. Number one, it comforts us because we know that the persecution won't last forever. Eventually, the spiritual descendants of Ishmael are going to be cast out. Don't worry because of evildoers whether they're outside or inside the church, because their place and their power are temporary. The psalmist in Psalm 37 describes the wicked like smoke that vanishes. You ever seen a puff of smoke? How quickly it just disappears? Compares them to a blade of grass that pops up in the desert in the morning and by evening is gone. Don't fret yourself. Don't worry because of them. Their power, their place is temporary. Instead, look, patiently look for the end that awaits them and that awaits you in heaven. So the promise of inheritance of this heavenly Jerusalem, it fortifies us to endure persecution. It also fortifies us to stand firm and not submit to a yoke of slavery. We don't want to make this mistake. Because if we, if we submit again... It'll make us like Ishmael and we will miss out on our inheritance. So it encourages us to endure persecution on the one hand and stand firm on the other. But there's another application in verse 30. Cast out false doctrine from the church and from your life. Paul asks this question, what does Scripture say? Verse 30, cast out the slave woman and her son because the son of the slave will not inherit with the son of the free woman. The implication is, is that the Galatians should cast out the Judaizers, because they don't have any 
part in God's inheritance. There can be no unity, no fellowship, no compromise with the Judaizers who insist on observance of the law for the sake of righteousness. Why? Because it's a different gospel. Trying to put the Gentiles under the law to obtain righteousness and acceptance by God is a false gospel. It shows the Judaizers are still spiritually enslaved. They don't have any part in God's inheritance. Of this entire historical narrative of Hagar and Sarah, Paul chooses to quote this one verse from Genesis 21.10 and apply it to the Galatians so they won't tolerate a false gospel. Paul has already said... If anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Galatians 1.9 To the false brothers in Jerusalem who, who, who snuck in to spy out their freedom, Paul says, we didn't yield to them even for a second so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians 2, 4 and 5. He even confronts Peter when his conduct is out of step, out of keeping with the gospel. Galatians 2.14 So it shouldn't surprise us to find him here urging them to remove false teachers and false doctrine from among them. So from this we learn not to tolerate false doctrine and false gospel in the church or in our own lives. Each of us is called to stand firm in the faith. That leads to the final application in Paul's concluding point. Stand firm in your freedom in Christ. Don't, know, don't go back to the slavery of the law or of your sin. We can finally see Paul's point. Don't listen to these false teachers. They're telling you, they're telling you how to become a son of Abraham. But watch out. Watch out. It's not what you think. If you listen to them, you're going to be an Ishmael, not an Isaac. A slave, not an heir. So he calls the believers to stand firm in the faith, stand firm in their freedom in Christ, and not submit to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is the burden of trying to obey the law to gain God's favor and righteousness. Christians have to stand firm against those who would enslave them with special rules or conditions for salvation or growing in righteousness. Like we said... If you have Christ adding anything else to the gospel, either for justification or sanctification, is turning back to a life of slavery. It means missing the inheritance. Paul's going to go on to say, if you turn to circumcision, you have to keep all of the law. You've been severed from Christ, fallen away from grace. We'll see that next week. So they've got to stand firm in their freedom in Christ. What is that freedom? Well, it's two things. It's freedom from bondage to the law and freedom from bondage to sin. We're free from the ceremonial laws, circumcision, the feasts, the festivals, the Sabbath laws, the food laws. We're free from trying to earn salvation and righteousness and God's acceptance by work. That's a yoke of slavery that no one has been able to bear, Peter says in Acts 15.10. We're free from trying to earn our way <laughs> to God or to heaven. But it also means we're free from bondage to sin, from its power and penalty. We're free to obey Christ. Now listen close, church. When I say we're free to obey Christ, it's not a trick. Like when I was a new Christian, I always used to think, free, free to obey? Like that's a trick. What are you talking about? 
We're free because when you're born of the Spirit, you do what you love, which is to say that you love to serve and obey Jesus Christ. You're free. Free. Finally. It's not a trick. If you're born of the Spirit, you will love to obey Christ. It's what you will desire to do. It's how you will choose to use your freedom. It's why Paul is going to go on to say, don't use your freedom to, to, to indulge in the flesh, but through love serve one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. Pastor Jonathan is going to unpack that more next week. Now, freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Free to love and serve Christ and others. That's our joy. Amen? Free from trying to achieve our salvation or sanctification by our own efforts. How do we stand in this freedom? Well, we don't go back to the Mosaic Law. We don't submit again to this yoke of slavery which can't be kept. This is how Paul says it to the Galatians. He says, Therefore, no, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine you're talking to someone who's starving to death, right? You say, oh, I've got this apple for you. And they say, oh, that's amazing. Look at this shadow. This shadow is so awesome. Look how it points to the apple. And you'd be like, hold up. I've got this apple for you. Oh, but the shadow, the shadow is amazing. Let's look at the shadow. You say, look, the shadow, it cannot feed you. It cannot nourish you. It cannot give you what you need. Take the apple. In the same way, Paul is saying, don't let anyone cast judgment on you for these things. You have this. You have Christ, the substance. There's nothing in doing all these things. The, the good, the meaning of this is that it points us to Christ. The law is a guardian until Christ comes. Oh. And rolls away. Take, take the apple. It's foolish to go back to the shadow. Those are just shadows. Don't go back to the Mosaic Law. The substance is in Christ. He's everything. If you have Him, you don't need the other. Do you see? Stand 
firm and don't go back to a yoke of slavery. To stand firm also means you don't go back to your sin, which so easily entangles you. You don't submit to what you've been freed from already. Don't go back to that yoke either. With Christ, then, we've died to our sin. We've been raised to new life. So that means that standing firm in our freedom in Christ guards us against two things. It guards us against legalism, going back to the bondage of the law on the one hand, and it also guards us against using our freedom as an excuse for the flesh, as license to sin. Standing firm in your freedom in Christ guards you against both legalism and license. John Stott put it this way. He said, The Ishmaels of this world trust themselves that they're righteous. The Isaacs trust only in God through Jesus Christ. The Ishmaels are in bondage because this is what self-reliance always leads to. The Isaacs enjoy freedom because it is through faith in Christ that men are set free. It is only by faith in Christ that we inherit the promises, receive the grace, and enjoy the freedom of God. Beloved, Christ Jesus has set you free. He has set you free. So stand firm in your freedom. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what can we do but celebrate you and thank you and praise you for what you have done on our behalf? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us put these truths into practice in our lives. I pray, God, that you'd seal these truths on our hearts. By your Spirit, you would bring fruit. Just as you brought us to new birth in Christ, we pray that you would bring the fruit in our lives. Lord, we ask and we pray this in your name and all God's people said, Amen.